Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Good morning, everybody. And yeah, good morning to those of you joining us online. Uh, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, we're continuing in a series that we have been calling The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ, where we've been looking at the last book of the Bible known as Revelation. And if you've been here the last number of weeks, you've known that we've been talking about this book in a sense. It's kind of like a drama, a play, five-act play that's kind of being performed and, and unfolding as we, as we look at these at this story, at, at these pages. And, and this is a, a play, and it's full of symbolism, full of, full of imagery. And it was meant to encourage. It was meant to encourage John, who received this vision from God, but then also encourage the early church as it was passed on to them, and then to us as well. But as we've discovered, it's an odd play. It's quite unusual. It's very unique. Some of the characters are very unique, even a little scary. And I think to the 21st century reader, it can feel a bit confusing, to say the least. And it can make a lot of people wonder, is this really supposed to be in the Bible? Like, is this, did this just get thrown in at the end by accident? Are they sure? Are you sure this was supposed to be here? But one of the things I've loved hearing over the last number of weeks for many of you is how many of you have said, this is really starting to make sense. Like, I'm really starting to understand this. And, and I've, I've, I'll be honest, I've been avoiding reading Revelation for a long time because it just seems so confusing. But, but it's almost like the curtain is being pulled back. And really, that is the whole point of Revelation, that a curtain is being pulled back that we can see. We can see in a new perspective what's really going on. And so picking up from last weekend, where Michael talked about Revelation 12, he talked essentially about the beginning of this third act of this five-act drama. And we met three different characters. We met three different characters in act three. And we've met these characters in previous acts before, but they've had a costume change. They're a little, they maybe look a little different. Last week, we met a dragon, we met a woman, and we met a baby boy. And if you remember, uh, this really was a symbol of the Christmas story symbol of the Christmas story, because the dragon was waiting for the baby boy to be born so he could do what? So he could kill him. And, and what, 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 essentially what happened was the dragon, representing the devil, working through King Herod, tried to have Jesus killed, along with all the other two-year-old boys and younger, uh, because he was worried about losing his throne. And, and so we essentially see that the dragon is working to manipulate things behind the scenes to try to make that happen. But at Christmas, he failed. But the dragon continues, the devil continues to, to try and eliminate Jesus all throughout his life and ministry. And it seems like he has succeeded when it comes to Good Friday. But we know that on Easter morning, that proves otherwise. Now we saw in the play that the dragon after he fails to kill Jesus, well, he succeeds, but then ultimately fails, I guess you could say, that he's now set his sights on destroying the other offspring of the woman, the brothers and sisters of this promised child, this brothers and sisters of Jesus. So that would include John, that would include the early Christians living back in the first century, all the way through history to today, essentially, putting pressure 
and pressure on us to compromise our faith to try to deceive us. And this week, we're gonna continue in this third act of this play to see how this dragon uses two new characters, two new characters, two beasts to try. And that's the key word, try, because they will ultimately fail, but to try and in, in, in the dragon's succeed in the dragon's mission. But let's pray and then we'll look at, at this passage of scripture. So Lord God, thank you for today. Thank you for everybody here. Thank you for everybody joining us online. And thank you that you're actively present with us, whether we're here or at home right now. And as we dive into some deep things, some difficult things, would you give us eyes to see, to see the truth, to see what is unseen, to see you and your activity in this play, but also in our lives, Jesus. Pray that in your name, amen, amen. So we're gonna look at mostly at Revelation 13 today, but before we jump into 13, I wanna go back and talk about one specific verse that Michael talked about last week in Revelation chapter 12, because it has huge implications for what we're gonna talk about today. Last week, when we learned about this dragon, we learned that he had been cast out of heaven. And it says in Revelation 12, 12, this, but woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. So this, the dragon, the devil has been cast down from heaven to earth and the sea. And it says he's angry and he knows his time is limited. So what's he going to do with this limited time? What's he going to do when he gets down to the earth and to the sea? He's going to recruit. He's gonna recruit. He's going to recruit two beasts in this play, one from the earth and one from the sea to help him in his deception to go after the siblings of the child of Jesus. And first we meet, when we open up the pages of chapter 13, we first meet the beast of the sea right off the bat. Uh, chapter 13, verse one says this, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had 10 horns and seven heads and with 10 crowns on its horns and on each head, a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast and they also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemes and exercise its authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name in his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. I'll pause there for a second. So first, in verse one, we see the dragon again, but immediately right after that, we are introduced to this beast from the sea. And how is this sea beast described? Well, he has seven heads with 10 horns and crowns on each horn, crowns meaning like a king, but he has a false name. 
right? All these blasphemous names. And so it's a, he's a false god, right? He's a false king. 10 meaning completeness. Seven also meaning completeness and perfection, meaning it is a perfectly and completely false king represented here, a false god. And then we read that part of it looks like a leopard, part of it looks like a bear, part of it like a lion. And the original hearers of Revelation would have probably have caught this connection right away. We sometimes miss this, I think, living in our day and age. But those who were really familiar with the Old Testament would have got this right away. And, and the reference is to the book of Daniel. The prophet, Old Testament prophet Daniel, in, in his prophetic book, he has a dream. God gives him a dream in which he sees four different beasts. And, and one of the beasts looks like a leopard. One looks like a bear. One looks like a lion. And the fourth one he cannot describe is indescribable. And, and Daniel goes on, and basically these four beasts represented four different political empires. The Babylonian Empire, then the Persian Empire, then the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire, who each in their own way represent basically political powers over history that essentially did not worship God. They worshiped themselves. Each of these political powers were working to elevate their own status, their own dominion, not God's status and God's dominion. So what John is doing here is he's taking this imagery from Daniel, these four different beasts, and he's combining them together into one, into one symbol, a symbol that represents any past, present, or future political power that leaves the true living God out of the center of their worship and out of the center of their lives. In John's day and age, that would have been Rome. The early church would have understood this. Now, Rome did not start out wanting to be worshiped, but over time, they demanded it in order to maintain power and control and loyalty. You might remember earlier in this series, we talked about the whole reason that the author of this letter, John, is in prison on the island of Patmos is because he refused to worship the emperor, Domitian, who demanded that everybody call him Domine et Deus, meaning Lord and God. But Rome did not start out that way. It didn't happen overnight. It took years and multiple emperors to get that way. In 29 BC, the Roman emperor Augustus erected one temple in a city named Pergamum, which we've talked about Pergamum before. It was one of the seven cities that the seven churches, this letter was sent to originally. That He built one temple for him to be worshiped in that one city. By the end of his reign, though, over 40 years later, there was emperor worship happening in 35 cities across the Roman Empire. Augustus' successor, Tiberius, continued in this trend. So did Caligula, and then Nero, and then Domitian, the emperor who, was hap who was, happened to be the emperor at the time Revelation was written. Over 100 years later, demanded everyone call him Lord and God in order to maintain power, to deter challengers, and demand loyalty. Now, where, where does this sea beast get the authority and power to demand its own worship, like the Roman Empire did. Where does it get it from? Well, verse four, it says this. 
The people worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like this beast? Who can wage war against it? What John is saying here is that over time, Rome had been influenced and manipulated by the dragon. Not everything is as it seems. Something is moving behind the curtain. Over the centuries since Rome, one could argue we've seen this play out in different um, in other different political powers that have risen up. Maybe take uh, Imperial China, Imperial Japan, who, who participated in emperor worship. Even like the Nazi regime, you could argue, demanded its own worship. And look at all the atrocities that came out of that. The sea beast represents any political power that has been manipulated by the dragon, by the devil, but it says it will look like the lamb. It will look like the lamb. Referencing back to verse three, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The sea beast is mimicking someone here. Who's he mimicking? He's mimicking Jesus. He's mimicking the slain lamb that has been healed. He seems like he's the real king, but he's not. He seems like he's the savior, but he's not. The symbolism here in this play is that the devil has this historical track record of manipulating certain political powers in order to try to get people to worship these political powers for his own deceitful gain. Now, after we meet the beast of the sea, we meet the second beast, the beast of the earth. Verse 11, jump down to there. It says this, and then I saw a second beast coming up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and it made the earth and all its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given, power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. And it ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is six. Six, six. Now, we'll come back to that number 666. I know it's a hot interest topic uh, when it comes to Revelation, but first, let's talk about the second beast, this beast of the earth in the play. And Daryl Johnson, who we've been referring to his book, Discipleship on the Edge, he talks about this, and he talks about how this beast of the sea represents dragon-manipulated political power but the beast of the earth represents dragon-manipulated religious powers. And the original hearers of John's audience would have understood this too. How do we know this? Well, first we, we see how is this beast described. Two horns like a lamb, right? Verse 11. Then I saw a second beast come up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. Part of it 
looks like a lamb, but it sounds like a dragon. Part of it looks like God, but its voice or its words are from the dragon. Interesting, right? It's in disguise. It looks like a prophet, but it's a false prophet. Verse 12, it exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of the people. It's calling the people to worship something, right? Isn't that what religious leaders and prophets do? Don't they invite people to worship something or someone? But it isn't, it isn't calling people to worship the true lamb, but this false lamb. It's calling the people to, of the earth to worship the first beast, the beast of the sea. And this earth beast performed great signs, fire coming down from heaven, which is a reference to the Old Testament prophet Elijah, who called fire down to heaven to prove who the true God was. But first, verse 14, it says, it ordered them, the people of the earth, to set up an image, an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. To set up, to build an image. It's into image making. It's into idol making. Idols fashioned from gold and silver and wood and stone, those were big business in the Roman Empire. People got rich off of that. There were pagan, the pagan religious leaders did not like the Christians in the first century in the Roman empire because they were bad for business. They were bad for business. They didn't buy their idols. And as they shared Jesus with people, they encouraged other people not to buy their idols. There's a story in the, in the book of Acts. I believe it's Acts 17. Paul is in Ephesus, one of the churches that also received this letter. And he's there sharing the gospel. And there are a group of idol makers who start a riot in the city because of what Paul is doing is going to ruin their business. And so it's no wonder they weren't allowed to buy and sell in the marketplace and people weren't happy with these Christians. Right? At this time in the Roman Empire, there, there were also, again, there were statues and temples all around the Roman cities encouraging emperor worship. And these places would have required Roman pagan religious leaders to facilitate that emperor worship. Verse 15, it says, the second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. The earth beast gives breath and makes it so this false idol can speak. Interestingly, there was a group of religious leaders in John's day and age in the Roman Empire called the Commune of Asia. And this group was one of the biggest proponents of emperor cult worship. And they would use trickery and hidden pulley systems to make statues of the emperor appear to move. They would use ventriloquism and tricks like that to make it as if the statues are speaking, giving it breath, giving it a voice to manipulate the people into worshiping the emperor. And it says all who refused to worship would be killed. And we know that many of the early church were martyred for their faith. So in John's day and age, the dragon has recruited these two beasts, these two beasts, and he's using the earth beast or dragon manipulated religious powers 
to point people to worshiping the sea beast or dragon-manipulated political powers. But what John and the early church experienced in this was nothing new. It was not new. It was, in fact, what the dragon, the devil, has been doing all along, especially in plotting to kill Jesus. In the gospel, Mark, Jesus had just begun his ministry. He's going around healing people, casting demons out of people, forgiving people of their sins. And in Mark 3, 6, there's a verse in there that we might fairly quickly just move right through. But it says this. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Who were the Pharisees? They were the religious leaders of that day and age who liked their status and felt threatened by Jesus. And they played the part of the earth beast, being manipulated by the dragon to join forces with the Herodians. Well, who were the Herodians? The Herodians, they were the political party supporting Herod, who was the political leader ruling over Galilee at that time, put there by Roman Caesar himself. They were playing the part of the sea beast. And even though normally the Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other, in this case, they joined together to begin to plot Jesus' death. And we see this all, all behind this is the orchestrating this is the dragon manipulating things. And we see this plot ultimately enacted on Good Friday, right? Where the religious powers and the political powers join together to deal with their Jesus problem. But we'll, doc, we'll save that a little bit more for Good Friday. I have a lot more I want to say about that, but we'll, we'll, you have to come back Good Friday service to hear that part. But, but we, know, we know the dragon is still up to his schemes and still continuing this, and he's going to continue this stuff until Jesus comes back. How do we know that? Well, back in verse five, it says that the sea beast was allowed to do his work for 42 months. 42 months. Statistic or symbol? Symbol, right? We've talked about this. In the book of Revelation, numbers are symbols. And we've actually seen this symbol before. 42. 42 months. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. 42 months is equal to three and a half years. Three and a half is half of seven, the number of perfection, the number of completion. Three and a half years represents the overlapping time period of the two kingdoms, of the now and the not yet, the time between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. The dragon, again, knows his time is limited. So he's looking for ways to manipulate religious and political powers to deceive people and to unknowingly worship him as a false alternative to God. What John is describing in this third act of this Revelation play is essentially the devil's attempt at mimicking the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You know, the devil, the dragon, is mimicking God the Father. He wants to be God. He wants to sit on the throne, right? He raises up this sea beast as a false Messiah, a false Jesus, giving him power, calling people to worship him, calling people to follow him. But he's not the real king. He's not the real savior. Jesus is the real king. Jesus is the real savior. And then the earth beast who gives breath to the sea beast serves as like a false prophet, a false spirit, almost like a false holy spirit, calling the people to worship the sea beast. The dragon, the sea beast, and the earth beast together form a pseudo-trinity-like figure 
trying to deceive all the siblings of the child, all the siblings of Jesus into worshiping them. And unfortunately, it says that some will choose that. Some will choose this false lamb. And that brings us to the often discussed number 666. Just like earlier in Act 2, I talked about this a few weeks ago, Jesus put a seal, a spiritual mark on his faithful followers. And, and, and just like that, this false god, the dragon, is mimicking the true God and puts his own mark, 666, on his followers. But what does that mean? What does that mean, 666? If I go to the grocery store after the service today, and I, you know, buy something and the clerk gives me back my change and I put my right hand out and she gives me $6.66, should I be worried? Should I be concerned? No, 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 it's a symbol. It's a number, so it's a symbol, right? It's a symbol. Well, what does this symbol mean? What does this mark mean? Well, some have people have, have, have there's a lot of debate about this. And some have thought about it in a lot of ways and there's some who have kind of turned it into like a secret code where numbers could stand for letters in the Greek alphabet, kind of like if, if A is equal to one, B would then be equal to two. And if you get the numbers just right, kind of got to do some tricky things with the numbers a little bit, but if you get them just right, you can get the number 666 to essentially spell out Nero Caesar, which Nero was one of the, the Roman empires who was known for doing just atrocious things and persecuting Christians. But again, you have to do some, some maneuvering to get the numbers to do that. In my opinion, and I could be wrong, but in my opinion, I think it's a little simpler than that. The number six is one less than seven. The number of perfection and completeness. Six is close to seven. It's almost there, but it's not there. and It'll never be there. It's almost perfect, but it's imperfect. It's almost complete, but it's not. It will always be incomplete, right? It will always miss the mark just a little bit. It will look close. It might even deceive some people thinking it's close enough, but it will miss the mark. Just like the dragon will always miss the mark. He looks like the lamb, but he's not the lamb. But why, why three of them? Why three sixes? Well, again, three is also a number that means completeness. So by having three sixes, you could say he's completely incomplete or he's completely imperfect or he completely falls short. And then again, there's this idea of a false trinity or group of three, right? The dragon wants to appear like God, but he's just a six, just a six. The beast of the sea is worshiped like the lamb, but he's a false lamb, he's a false idol, he's just a six. Um, the beast of the earth who calls the world to worship the beast of the sea and who's pulling the strings behind the scenes and using ventriloquism to make it seem like the sea beast can talk and that he's alive, but he's not alive. He's just a six. Six, six, six. The dragon and the political powers and the religious powers that he manages to manipulate will always be one less, one less, one less than the one who is truly worth being worshiped and the one who's truly on the throne. So what can we take from all of this, right? Because we are still living in that third act. We're still living in this time period, right? Well, a couple of things I think that we can take from this. First, 
I believe it is a call to pay attention. Not to panic, but a call to pay attention. In between the two descriptions of the two beasts, we skipped over this verse, but I wanna go back to it. It's verse nine. It says this, whoever has ears, let them hear. Simply meaning, pay attention, right? If you have ears, listen, use them. If you have eyes, look, use them. Things are not as they seem. The dragon's manipulation of certain political and religious powers can be seen all throughout history. But I do wanna clarify something here. What I am not saying in all of this, what I'm not saying is that every political power is evil. I'm not saying that. I'm also not saying that every political nation or every political leader that has risen to power is being manipulated by the dragon. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that every political power that is not coming under the sovereign rule of God has the potential to be influenced and manipulated by the dragon to keep its power and to compromise in order to gain and maintain control. It has the potential of that. And as Christians, it is so important, it's so important, I believe, that we do not fall for this false idea to look at our political leaders as the ones who have the ultimate power to save us, because they don't. Respect them, yes, we should respect them. Uh, but, but put our ultimate faith in them, no. Worship them, no, no. You know, if you, if you watch the national news regularly if you've, in the last few weeks, you know, we're, we're still a year and a half away from the next presidential election and it's already permeating all throughout the news. It's everywhere. And I'm already hearing people saying on the news things like, if this person gets elected, we're doomed in this country. Or if so-and-so gets elected, well, that's our only hope if so-and-so gets elected. And those kinds of really fearful, driven comments, because I think that's really what it's driven by fear, concern me. Those concern me. In the end, I hope and I pray that we will elect leaders who seek out to live Micah 6, 8, which says, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. I pray that. I pray that, but whoever ends up in the Oval Office and the Senate offices and the House committees and all of those things, they are not who we should be putting our ultimate faith and hope in. The dragon would really like us to be tempted to do that. He would, but, but, it, but we are ultimately meant to put our hope and faith in one person and one person alone, and that's Jesus Christ. That's him, that's it. And let me add to that. I get concerned, I get concerned whenever I see a portion, a portion of the church, big C church, begin to tell people who they should vote for or what political party they should ascribe to. I get concerned by that. And I'm not saying that's done with evil intentions. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that there is a potential, potential for dragon-like manipulation there. The Pharisees were duped by it. They missed it. They were deceived by the dragon. What makes us think that we are so immune to being tempted by him as well? Here at VCDC, we have made a very intentional and purposeful decision that when it comes to politics, that when it comes to politics, we will encourage you to vote, absolutely. We will encourage you to exercise both your right and responsibility, I believe, to vote.
We will encourage you to ask God for wisdom and discernment and how you should vote. But you will never see political signs in the front lawn out here pointing to one political party or person or another because we believe as a church, we are called to point to one person and one person alone and it is Jesus Christ. We are called to encourage you to keep your eyes focused on him. And if that brings up questions, and if you have concerns or you want to talk more about that, I'm, I, I would highly encourage you to just send an email. Just remember, my email is spelled M-I-C-H-A-E-L-H. Yeah, I get all of his emails. He might as well get some of mine, right? So, but, but we should, we should pay attention. Not panic, though. We don't need to panic. We don't need to live in fear. We don't need to panic, but we should pay attention. That's the first point. The second point is we should pray. We should pray. We should pray for our country and our political leaders. We should pray for our churches and our religious leaders. We can do that. I do not think it's coincidence at all that if you've been participating in our 40 days of prayer and fasting daily plan in the booklet, um, and there, there are suggested groups to pray for every day, if you've noticed that. And on Thursday... We prayed for our nation. We prayed for our political leaders. And the very next day on Friday, we prayed for our churches and for our religious leaders. I would encourage you to make that a regular habit of your routine, to be praying for our country, to be praying for our churches, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And one final point, I wanna invite up the worship team to start to make their way back up here. But the final and third point I'll say is, it's, I believe it's a call to patient endurance. Patient endurance. Chapter 14 goes on to say that we should hold on and be encouraged. Chapter 14, verse 12, we are told what to do. It says this, this calls for patient endurance on part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Patient endurance while we wait for one day, for one day when the lamb will sort all of this out. Chapter 14 goes on to say that there will be a celebration of a new song that will break out, that the dragon's time is limited, that we don't need to fear or panic. We should pay attention, yes. We should pray, yes. And we should keep going with patient endurance, yes, but not fear and not panic because in the end, Jesus wins and everything will be sorted out. Amen? Man, why don't we stand up? Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.